Welcome to the Village Church Podcast. Thanks for stopping by and taking the time to listen. We've prayed that this podcast channel blesses and encourages the Village family. So lean in with an open heart, eager to grow, and enjoy the episode. Um, it's dealing with the first start half of the Samson story. And he's perhaps the most famous of the judges. Uh, Gideon's up there, but Samson probably has the most written about him. There's the most chapters dedicated to this one guy. And uh, we've got the first half, which is the good half. Samson's life is very definitely split in two halves. His ministry is split in two halves, and we're dealing with the first half today. And uh, we're going to read a bunch of scripture, and we'll just wander through the story and and see what it it pops out. Uh, We'll start by reading just the very opening uh, salvo of his life, and that's uh, his birth or the story of his birth. So uh, Judges chapter 13, verses 1 to 5 says this, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. There was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Okay, this is the introduction to Samson's life, and uh, we we are going to wander through the next two or three chapters, but um, I don't know um, if you guys have got a good grasp on on the story of Judges and where this all sits, and I, I don't... I hate reading stories in scripture and not knowing the big picture and where it sits. So I've got a couple of slides. First one, I don't know if I'll go through this first slide. It's my timeline. This is my very fancy timeline of where Judges sits. Uh, I've got Abraham over here. So way back in Genesis, God calls this man Abraham and, and begins his redemptive purposes for humanity through one man. Begins with Abraham, promises him that he's going to have descendants. That too is a miracle birth, just like this one. They're visited saying, you're going to have a child. Anyway, that's a, that's a theme we're going to hear in the story. He has descendants. There's 12 shadows there. That's the 12 sons of Israel. Uh, they all moved down to Egypt at some point. I don't think they built the pyramids, but they did something down there. And you get the picture. <laughs> you know it's Egypt when you see that thing. Uh, they're down at Egypt. God delivers them out of Egypt, and he delivers them out through the Red Sea. They're baptized through the Red Sea into into relationship with God. They meet with God at the base of Mount Sinai. God comes down in the mountain on fire. He gives them his law and they enter covenant there with God and they're his people and he is their God. Okay, that's what happens there. And he promises them, I'm going to take you to it. Actually, he promises way back over here somewhere that he's going to take them into a land flowing with milk and honey. All right. So you know that um, that doesn't happen straight away. There's 40 years of wilderness wanderings. They kind of get there one time and they they sort of blow it at that point. So then there's another generation falls in the wilderness. There's a lot of dust and cactuses and stuff in the wilderness. That's why that picture's there. 40 years. And then under Joshua, they come to the the edge of uh, the Jordan River. They're about to cross into the land and they do enter the land of milk and honey under Joshua's leadership. Um, and as the story continues, within a couple of hundred years, they're going to have a king. They're going to have a godly king. His name is David, but not yet. And where the book of Judges lands is between the milk and honey and the king. In that, that gap in there, a few hundred years, two or three hundred years, where um, they are in the land of promise, but they don't yet have a godly king. 
And that's the theme of the book of Judges. In fact, the last line of the book of Judges is, and, the, uh, and there was, in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So this is, the book of Judges is an apologetic for the need of, for Israel to have a godly king, probably written by Samuel. And he is writing to them saying, here, here is why we need a godly king. Look what happens to a nation when there is no godly king, when there is no godly leadership that sits over it. It goes feral. And um, Judges is a story of a nation that descends into feralness. Okay, so that's the point of the book of Judges. That's kind of the big picture. What's the next, what's the next slide? I can't remember. Oh, yeah, you should know this by now. There's a cycle in Judges. So it's a repeated story six or seven times of this cycle. The people. Uh, have some good times, they love God, yay, we love God. Then um, the good times, they get complacent, they begin looking around the corner and there's idols over there that look attractive and they start worshipping the idols of the Canaanites and the Philistines and the Midianites and all those guys. So they forget God. God sends them bad times. He, he, um, these are not accidental things that happen. God deliberately disciplines his kids. All right, and, and the things that happen to Israel in this time are the, the discipline of a loving father on his people. Okay, they wander from him and he gives them over to the things they go after. You want to worship, you want to worship the God of the Midianites? You can see what it's like to live in Midianite society and you won't be happy about it. So that's what happens. They cry out for help. They, they realize that, okay, things are kind of bad here. Um, we'll cry out for help, for rescue from under these Midianites or these Canaanites or whoever it is. God sends a deliverer in the form of a judge. And uh, Samson is one of those, Gideon, Jephthah, Ehud, various figures, uh, Deborah. They, they come along at these strategic moments and they are instrumental in God's hands to deliver the people out of the bondage they're in, which leads them back into good times again, okay? Which is the first step in the process. And that cycle happens again and again in the book of Judges. You all know this? This is familiar territory? Cool. Good. You, you, you know. Now when you hear the book of Judges, you go, I know how this thing rolls. I know Judges. It's the cycles. It's the cycles. Um, there's, a, there's an even cooler thing. I'm going to nerd out for just two minutes. Um, I'm going to show you the Judges, um, the Judges chiasm. So let's just go to the next slide. Uh, a chiasm is a literary device. By the way, when you're reading um, these narratives, you can read it and go, oh, some guy just wrote these stories end on end and it's all kind of funny and interesting. But they were a bit clueless back then. They didn't know how to write good stories. And um, you'd be totally wrong. The authors of scripture are brilliant people. Probably Samuel wrote this. And Judges is written in very deliberate style to make the point about that king thing even sharper. He wrote this, he wrote this story. Much of scripture in the Old Testament is written chiastically. And that means it's a story with a point and a counterpoint at the other end of the story. Then another point, another counterpoint like this, and I'll show you how it works. So Judges starts with Judah going into Canaan and fighting the enemies. They have partial victory. The book of Judges ends with Judah fighting Judah's brothers, the tribe of Benjamin. Okay, They start by fighting their enemies. The end of the book of Judges is Judah fighting their brothers. Okay, And it's, and, and it's not partial victory. It's all around losing. Everyone loses at the end of Judges. Second story in Judges is uh, chapter two, we get the idea of idolatry introduced and you have all these tribes mentioned, but the Levites who are charged, they are the gatekeepers of holiness. They are charged with, with protecting the, the ritual integrity of the people of God. They are nowhere to be seen. So you have all this idolatry introduced and the very guys, the very tribe that's been carved out saying, you don't get any land, your focus is guarding the ritual purity of Israel. They're nowhere to be found anywhere. So they're, they're absent 
the last, the, the corollary story at the end of the book of Judges is stories about Levites who are central to the apostasy. They're not just absent, not doing stuff. They're central to Israel's apostasy and the worship of images, all right? So the Levites aren't just like asleep at the post. At the end, they're complicit in all the idolatry and they're actually in the center of it. Next story, Othniel. He's a victorious judge and uh, little comments there made about the virtuous wife that he marries and she's a good lady. Her name is Aksa. And her, his corollary is Samson at the end of the book of Judges as we work backwards in. We hit Samson. He has a partial, he's partially victorious. He begins to save Israel from, from their enemies. He has a partial victory. And the, the kind of hallmark over Samson's life is his terrible choice in women. Okay. Othniel, he's a great wife. Samson, his stories are all about women, and, and we'll read about that today. A trail of ungodly women. Next story. Can you see what's happening here? We're getting towards a point, and the point matters, and this is what the author of Judges is trying to go, like get your eyes drawn to the point. Uh, Ehud is 18 years under Moab. The Moabites are descendants of Lot. Um, Ephraim is an ally, and they have a victory at the fords of the Jordan. Ephraim is one of their, their brothers. Jephthah is the corollary judge, 18 years under Ammon, Lot's other descendant. Ephraim is now an enemy and there's defeat at the fords of the Jordan. Do you see how this, like you don't notice it if, if you just read it, but if you know Hebrew, I think it's sort of more apparent the way things are written, words that are used that pop up again and again, it becomes more apparent. We have to have PowerPoint to help us see these things. All right, so next one, Deborah and Barak, you might have remembered that story. Um, the enemy is killed. And killed by a woman. The glory goes to a woman with jail. These are the stories you never heard about at Sunday school. And at least they didn't make it onto the flannel graph when I was a, here's, here's jail, here's his spear, here's how she's hit it into this guy's brains. Okay. Um, so the enemy is killed. The glory goes to a woman. Abimelech is the corollary judge. He's just a bad guy. Okay. Um, he, he kills himself because a woman throws a millstone off the top of the off the, off the top of the, the, the um, parapet and it knocks him in the head and scones him and he's like, he's, gonna, he's got a major head injury, he's going to die. And uh, he, he wants his soldier to kill him so that the glory does not go to a woman. All right, do you see how all these things pair up? Next one is the story of Gideon. So Gideon is the central figure in Judges. Gideon is the kind of apex to, to say, here's what's really going on in this story and his life is in two parts. What do we got? Okay, at the start of his life, he opposes idolatry. He goes and cuts down his dad's Asherah pole and pulls down the altar with the oxen and sacrifices it. And he is a, he's a valiant man who opposes Israel's idolatry. But at the end of the life, his, he is central to idolatry. He, he says, hey, guys, can I have some gold? Yeah, I, I won't be a king. I'll, I'll take your gold, though, and I'll take some many wives and I'll do all the things that kings do. Uh, and what happens when I take all this gold? I make this ephod. I don't even know what that is. But it... it it caused, it was a snare to Israel. They worshiped this thing, it became a snare to Israel. So at the start, he opposes idolatry, then he promotes idolatry. And, and sort of in between those two is this cry of the people when Gideon has his victory Gideon, you're the, you're the king we've been waiting for. We want you to be our king. You're, a, you're the king we want. We want you to be our king. We want you to rule over us. We want your sons to rule over us. And we want your grandsons to rule over us. We want, this is the start of the dynasty. This is the start of the great nation of Israel. And that is a, that, that cry is the, the, the call of the story of Judges. Um, Israel needs a godly king. They don't need an ungodly king. Ungodly kings do bad things. Gideon acts like a king and it's all bad. And so you can also see that the, the story kind of has a, 
it starts off going, oh, yeah, there's some victories and things are pretty good. Often he was a good guy. Ehud does some good stuff with that, you know, knife gun in that guy's belly. And then we, as we work through, um, it just gets bad. And the end of the book of Judges, you end it and you go, what was that all about? It's the last few chapters, which we're too scared to preach on, uh, just like depressing and terrible. And there's no one to cheer for. I guess the flow of judges is to make the point, these guys need a godly king. These guys need a king who knows God's law, who meditates on it day and night, who lies awake in the night, treasuring up God's law and then ruling out of that law. That's what this nation needs. And they're not going to get it by, by looking at the other nations for a king. They wanted a king like the other nations. And God was teaching them, you need a godly king who is not like the kings of the other nations. And God has his time in mind. He has the man in mind. He is not born yet. And uh, the book of Ruth tells us, oh, it's all very, you can't read Judges without reading Ruth and realizing that God's doing something quite incredible in the background here to make sure that the king comes at the right time. Anyway, yeah, Samson, that's what I was trying to study. That's what I was trying to, what are we up to, Samson? So the, um, verse one is the, the people of Israel did again what was evil in the sight of the Lord and the God gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. Um, if we go back to our kind of cycle slide, there's the one in there where the people repent and cry out. At this point in the ju- in Judges, um, um, that stops happening. So good times happen. They forget God. They have bad times. And then God has to God has to be the proactive one. God has to send the deliverer because the people are quite comfortable in their oppression. The people are quite comfortable in their bad times. They're like, they're not even crying out anymore. They're just sitting there going, oh, this is the way things are. So the Philistines rule over us. That's just the way things are. Samson, don't you know that the Philistines rule over us? Why are you stirring up trouble? You know, this is the way things are. They're quite comfortable. And, and that's maybe understandable. Um, the Philistines are um, life's tolerable under the Philistines. Okay, Under the Midianites, they will go and live in caves. The Israelites have to run and hide in caves. Gideon has to beat out his wheat in the wine press and hide it. But under the Philistines, he can kind of conduct business. And sure, the taxes are high, all right? Sure, there's, uh, you've got to apply for lots of you know, consents to do anything. The Philistines are kind of hard taskmasters, but life's tolerable. So they're not really crying out. And God has to initiate the rescue plan because God does not want his people living under Philistine rule. This is a judgment on them. And he, and he has to intervene to rescue them from it. They don't even, they just soak it up. What kind of deliverer is needed during tolerable servitude? There's no battlefront. There's no war happening. There's no crying out of people because their lands are being plundered. It's just high taxes and tough times, you know, but make do. What, what kind of deliverer is needed during times of tolerable servitude? The kind of deliverer you need is Samson. He is a holy troublemaker, a holy troublemaker. Do I have that on the, yeah, there we go. Samson, the holy troublemaker. Someone who will force the issue and bring things to a head. All right. And that's going to be Samson's project. Samson, as their deliverer, is going to go out. He's going to be a little bit wild. He's going to do some crazy stuff. He's going to poke the bear. He's going to start some fires. He's going to, he's going to pick some fights and he's going to be a troublemaker. That's what Samson's going to do. That's what you need when, when you're kind of tolerating things. You need someone who's a troublemaker to kind of kind of draw some hard lines and polarize things. Samson's going to be a polarizer. Um, anyone seen Braveheart? William Wallace was a polarizer. You remember? All the nobles in Scotland have made peace with England. That's tough. The taxes are high. You've got to take a hit. They're going to take some land off you. But times, you know, it's just how it is. The king of England, who, the last thing we want to do is get into a fight. All right. So we'll put up with the king of England and his demands. And William Wallace is like, 
no, I'm here to pick a fight. I'm here to draw some hard lines and make it so we don't get to sit around and accept this. We either fight or we, or we give up. So that's Samson. He is a holy troublemaker. Uh, things are too quiet around here, thinks Samson. We need to force the issue, okay, and bring things to a tipping point. And that earns Samson enemies on both sides. Remember William Wallace? Who betrayed William Wallace? I, I don't even know how true that story is, but in the movie, um, it's the nobles of Scotland that betray him because he's upsetting the apple cart too much. You can't, hey, things are kind of manageable at the moment and you're making things tense, so they, they sell the guy out. That happens in the story too. Judah binds Samson up and delivers him to the Philistines because he's a troublemaker. We're content with this tolerable servitude, um, and you're upsetting the apple cart, Samson. Samson's story begins with a familiar trope or motif. Do you know what a motif is or a, a trope, a, mo- a movie trope? If you're watching a movie, um, you, you'll see tropes all the time. The trope here, the, the motif here is the barren woman who can't conceive. The barren woman who can't conceive. That's a, that's a familiar um, That's a familiar plot device God uses in the scriptures to tell us he's about to send a rescuer, okay? Um, in a movie, a trope, a well-worn trope that gives you a heads up that something's about to happen is like uh, the sun, it's high noon, the tumbleweed rolls down the street, all the people are gapping it into the shops and hiding behind the windows and pulling the shades down and two guys walk onto the street and face each other. What's going to happen? Gunfight, okay, that's a, that's a trope. You know, you know when you see all that stuff, you don't need to be told there's going to be a gunfight. You know, it's coming. You're, you're, you're being primed to know what's happening. Um, or you're, you're, you're reading Jane Austen novel. I know some of you do this. No? Anthea says no? Okay, well, you've seen the movie though, surely. Um, you've got the pretty girl and the handsome guy. They meet each other at the start of the movie and they hate each other's guts. What do you know is going to happen? They're going to they're gonna, they're gonna fall in love and it's going to be happily ever after. That's what's going to happen. And you, you know that's how the story's going to end, all right? But why do you keep watching it? Because you want to see how the author kind of brings this to pass, this impossibility. How is he going to do it? That's, that's the, the trope here. The, the image here is the, the barren woman motif. Uh, it's a well-worn story in Scripture that tells us as hearers that God is about to act. God is about to send a deliverer and it's rescue time, okay? And usually usually this is uh, accompanied by a prophetic or an angelic announcement. You're going to have a child. And that's exactly what happens here. There's going to be a miracle child that's going to usher in a new day. That's a biblical motif. You might remember that's what happened with Sarah and, and Abraham. You're going to have a child. You know, this is impossible. We're in our 90s. You're going to have a child, and it's a miracle child. Um, you might remember... That Hannah, in the, if you carry on a little bit and you start reading Samuel, um, Hannah is weeping at the temple and, and Eli the priest looks at her and says, you know, she's drunk. It's the middle of the day and she's drunk and she's mumbling in the corner. Lady, you shouldn't be here. She's like, I'm not drunk. I'm grieved because I can't have a child. And Eli in that moment prophetically says to her, God's going to act. In a year's time, you're going to have a child. Um, and that's the birth of Samuel. Samuel is a judge. Samuel is a deliverer. And by the way, you look at the chronology, Samuel is a contemporary of Samson. They are doing things together at the same time. Okay. Um, Elizabeth is an old lady in the New Testament, and an angel visits her, and she is told, oh, actually, an angel visits Zechariah. He says, your, your wife is going to have a child. And he's like, I'm old. <laughs> How does that work? And, um, but John, the, 
Presbyterian is born. No, he's not. John, John the Baptist. John the Anglican. He's a, we don't want to give him to the, to the Baptists, all right? Like he's something. He's, he's an ecumenical guy. John the ecumenicalist. Um, John, John is born and he, is, he starts a new day in Israel's story. It's God's way of saying things have kind of got stagnant and I'm going to, I'm going to start a new day in the, in the redemptive story. This is how he does it. And the greatest, of course, is the birth of Jesus. Now, there's a miracle birth, if ever there was one, and he restarts the ultimate day. He restarts creation again, in actual fact. So this is, um, this is a familiar motif. Uh, Samson is going to begin to deliver Israel. He's not going to see Israel fully delivered. That's going to happen under Samuel in the Battle of Mizpah in 1 Samuel 6. But he's going he's to kickstart things with his troublemaking. All right. He is a Nazarite. Uh, he is a Nazarite from birth. What on earth is a Nazarite? It sounds like something from Lord of the Rings or something like flying on dragons. Um, a Nazarite is someone who has been separated from normal life for holy service. Okay, Usually holy war. They're consecrated and their life is put on hold while they accomplish something. All right. That's what a, someone would take a Nazarite vow if they had some holy purpose to live out and to pursue. And they said, nothing else matters but this. I will take a Nazarite vow until this is done, until this is done. And you read about it in chapter six of Numbers. Numbers six details the instructions of how someone under a vow of separation, a Nazarite vow, Nazir means separate. Nazarite means separated a separated person, all right? How someone under a vow of separation is to conduct themselves and what they're to do when they fulfilled their vow. So in, in Numbers 6, like this is history, but it's important. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel, say to them, when either a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite to separate himself to the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar made from wine or strong drink and shall not drink any juice of grapes or eat grapes, fresh or dried, all the days of his separation. He shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine, not even the seeds or the skins. No touching grapes, no eating grapevines. Not, you know, not that you'd eat a grapevine. So why does God not want a Nazarite to touch grape juice or wine or strong drink? That's because... Not it's not because God doesn't like wine. God does like wine. God thinks wine's a good thing. God gave us wine to gladden the heart. Okay, so God God thinks wine's good, but so it's not like wine is a bad thing, and the Nazarite has to avoid some bad stuff for the purpose of his vow. Wine in the Bible, and you got to think biblically. You, you can't just read this if you don't know the whole picture. You kind of lose stuff. In, in the scriptures, throughout scripture, wine is the stuff of celebration, of rest, and of rule. All right? Um, it's the, those are its associations and its symbols. Wine and grapevines are associated with rest, rule, and celebration. Um, when they are going to enter the land of rest, when they're sitting on the other side of the Jordan before they get into the promised land, God tells them what it's going to be like when they're going to get in there. He's going to be sitting you're going to be sitting in houses you didn't build. You'll be looking over your vineyards, which you didn't plant, but you're going to be at rest. And watch out that you don't forget me, all right? Okay, but he's, he's bounded in there as something of the promise. In Isaiah 26, the Lord of hosts is going to make on this mountain a feast of rich food 
well-aged wine, marbled steak. All right, that's the idea there. Well-aged wine, rich food, full of marrow, and aged wine, well-refined. God is not against wine, okay? But it has a time and a place. The time and the place for wine is a time of celebration and rest, okay? And a Nazarite can't celebrate and can't rest. He's got a job to do then he can rest, all right? That's why he forgoes wine, all right? In the festivals of Israel, they were to travel to Jerusalem or the tabernacle. They were to bring their tithe. They were to tra- they would turn that tithe into money, and then they would go to the temple, turn that money back into as much meat as they could handle and as much wine as they could drink, all right? You wonder where that verse is? I can show you later. They, they are to eat and drink before the Lord as ce- in celebration. Now, drunkenness is a sin, you shouldn't ever get drunk, but wine is not a sin. Wine is wine in the Bible. Strong drink is, is kind of our equivalent of beer. They didn't have distilleries and they couldn't make gin and all those kinds of things in those days, I don't think. Strong drink is beer. And it says here, juice of grapes. So the Bible knows how to say grape juice and it knows how to say wine. Jesus tells us to drink wine, just saying. All right. So a Nazarite vow is for a season of intense and serious devotion to some task. While that task remains uncompleted, no fruit of the vine, that's rest food. And then at the end, if we go to jump to the end of that chapter, after all these things are done, after you've made your sacrifices at the end of the vow, then the Nazarite may drink. Okay? Then you can sit down and enjoy wine, which is rest food. What did Jesus tell us to drink? Wine. Why? Because we are Christ's and we have entered his rest. Okay? His work is done, which means our work is done, which means when we worship God, he wants us to come and drink wine, okay? I'm not, I'm try, not trying to stir the pot here. I know this dials up things for people and you've got questions and what ifs. Just, I'm just trying to be, this is what the text says, all right? Blame numbers. Okay, uh, and Jesus himself, by the way, took a Nazarite vow. Do you remember that? He's, he's in the upper room with his disciples. He drinks the wine and he puts it down and says, I'm not going to drink of the wine again until I drink it anew with you in the kingdom of God. And Jesus has a work that he's about to go out in the night to do. All right. Jesus has, takes a Nazarite vow. Um, the next thing, haircuts, no haircuts for a Nazarite. All the days of his vow of separation, no razor shall touch his head until the time is completed for which he separates himself to the Lord. He, he is, shall be holy. He shall let the locks of his hair, locks of hair of his head grow long. Um, why is hair magic? All right. We read the Samson story and we think Samson's hair, Samson's got magic hair, <laughs> you know? No, he's a Nazarite. And, and a Nazarite, if you read through the passage, it's all about his consecrated head, his, his separated head, his, his head that has been set apart for holy duties. Um, the, the Nazarite has completely surrendered himself to God and said, for this season, this is my purpose. This is my vision. This is my central task. I'm going to stick with it. My whole body is given to this, okay? At the end of it, um, at the end of it, your hair is going to be long, okay? Don't cut your hair because it's growing out of your body while you're consecrated. Because your body is consecrated, what's growing out the top of it is also holy. And at the end of the vow, you shave it off and you send that hair up to God in a sacrifice. That's, I'm not going to read the rest of the chapter because I run out of time, okay? That's what the hair is about, um, 
no haircuts. Also, no touching dead people. Okay, so that's the third the prohibition. All the days that this is verse six of number six. All the days that he separates himself to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead body, not even his father or his mother, his brother or sister. If they die, he shall make himself unclean, because his separation to God is on his head. All the days of his separation, he is holy to the Lord. If someone dies suddenly beside him, so and you accidentally touch a dead body. He defiles his consecrated head. He shall shave his head on the day of his cleansing. And on the seventh day, he shall shave it. On the eighth day, he shall bring two turtle doves or two pigeons to the priest to the entrance of the tent of meeting. The priest shall offer one for a sin offering, the other for an ascension offering. Make atonement for that Nazarite because he sinned by reason of the dead body. And he shall consecrate his head that same day and separate himself to the Lord for the days of his separation. Bring a male lamb a year old for a guilt offering. But the previous period shall be void because his separation was defiled. It's very complex. All right, it's very complex, but it's a very serious thing to take a Nazarite vow. People wouldn't enter into this lightly. They would take it really seriously. And Samson had no choice. He was a Nazarite from birth. Okay, His mum was to touch no strong drink while she was pregnant. And Samson was never to touch strong drink, have his hair cut, touch a dead body while he was, um, while he was alive or he would be defiled. And, and, and by the way, weird, Paul took a Nazarite vow in the New Testament after Jesus had ascended to the Father. Paul took a Nazarite vow, okay? Um, and he went to the temple and offered the sacrifices that are mentioned here when the, when the time of his separation came to an end and he cut his hair and he did all this thing. Um, what was Paul's holy war? Why would Paul take a Nazarite vow? It makes the most sense to see that associated with his missionary journeys, okay? Paul is, Paul is going to conquest the Philistines, man. He's going, he's going out to the nations, taking the gospel and, and winning them for Christ and breaking into that place with the kingdom of God, that's holy war. And Paul takes a Nazarite vow, and that's talked about in Acts 18 and Acts 21. All right? You can't take a Nazarite vow because you can't end it. You can't take a Nazarite vow because you can't go to the temple and offer it up as a sacrifice because God pulled it down. All right? In AD 70, God made sure that temple was toast. You can't now take a, take a Nazarite vow. Okay. So if you're feeling like this is actually quite cool, sorry. All right. Let's read through the story. Um, Judges 13. We'll just whip through it. And I don't, I've got a sort of a, a landing point. What time does it go to here? Okay. Now you know all about Nazarites. We don't know anything about Samson. Okay. He's born. Let's jump to, um, Chapter 13, verse 24. If you, I'm sorry, I should have had it up there. It's not there. Look at your phones, Bibles, whatever. Okay, 13, 24. And the woman bore a son. She called his name Samson. The young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahanadan between Zorah and Eshtael. And then Samson went down to Timnah. Now, uh, I want you to put your thumb over the 14, number 14, and pretend it's not there because that'll mess you up. You'll think this is a whole another part. This is the next chapter in the story. It's not the next chapter. The chapter divisions in your Bible are uh, put there by well-meaning people. They're helpful for like indexing the thing, but sometimes they mess your head up about where the breaks are and they put 14 in the wrong place. Okay. The, if you put the 14 there, you'll think Samson's about to do some dumb stuff because you've separated it from the verse before, which says that the spirit of the Lord is stirring Samson. Okay. The spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahanadan, and Samson went down to Timnah. That's this, like they go together. What's happening in Timnah is the stirring of the spirit of the Lord. And he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines, 14 verse 2, 
Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. All right. Uh, it's a different time, everyone. This is how they did it. Uh, they said to him, is there not a, a lovely young lady among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go and take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, get her for me for she's right in my eyes. All right. Um, the assumption of the family is that it's a bad idea, but they did not know it was from the Lord. Um, for he was seeking an opportunity against Philistines. Who's the he? Yeah, Samson. Samson's seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. The spirit of the Lord is stirring him. He is looking for an opportunity against the Philistines. What better way to stir up strife than go try and marry one of them, all right? Then I'm going to have to get invited to the Christmas parties. We're going to have the family get-togethers, and I'm going to be in the middle of the Philistines, and it's ripe, ripe opportunities for stirring up strife because that's what he is. Samson is a troublemaker. He is a troublemaker. When times are good, what do you need? You need a troublemaker. When times are acceptably, tolerably bad, and everyone can cope with it, you need a troublemaker to make it like harsh. And that's what he does. He's looking, uh, he is looking for an opportunity. And this is God's at work in his life. This isn't Samson sinning. Don't, he, he does some sins later on. It goes bad. All right. But at this stage of his life, everything we read here is Samson is kind of led by the spirit. The spirit comes on him. The spirit is doing things. So the spirit of the Lord began to stir him. He goes down there. Um, he wants to make her his wife. I think he does love her based on how the story goes. Uh, she's not a Canaanite, so he can marry her. They're not to marry Canaanites, but he can marry a Philistine. Philistines are descendants of Egyptians, and that's all good. Um, and he just sees this is an opportunity. Grandpa's 90th birthday. If we're married, it's all going to go good. We have the opportunities to stir things up. Verses 5 to 7. So Samson went down with his father and mother. They came to the vineyards of Timnah, and behold, a young lion came towards him, roaring, Then the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion to pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or mother what he'd done. Then he went down to talk with the woman, and she was all right in his eyes, all right? So he's like, yep, I'm pretty sure this is the girl for me. Um, Now, we read this. Some people go, at this point, bad Samson. What are you doing in a vineyard? You know? But there's nothing in the story which um, says outright that Samson's doing anything bad. The lion roars and attacks him. He rips this thing apart. Um, the, the spirit of the Lord is, is in this moment too. The spirit of the Lord rushes on him to do this, to kill this big bad lion. Verse 8 and 9, after some days, he returned to take her and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion and behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. He scraped it out into his hands and went on eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave some to them and they ate. But he did not tell them that, the, that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. Here we go. Dead carcass, bad Samson, aren't you an Ezra? shouldn't be touching a dead animal. Uh, no, no, not to touch dead people. Okay. Samson, like a lot of people think Samson's such a wild man. He's doing naughty things here. No, I, I, I'm pretty, okay. Some of the things I'll say today, I'm not sure about. This one, I'm pretty sure that this is a good thing. Okay. That nothing is being done wrong here. Samson goes and looks at the dead lion. There is... He's at the entrance. So here's, here's, here's how I know this is a good thing. He's at the entrance. To, do you know how I told you that the authors are really clever and they tell you parallel stories? This is paralleled with the destruction of the Philistines later on. I'll show you how it works. He's at the entrance to the Philistine territory. A lion roars and attacks him. The spirit of the Lord rushes upon him. He tears it apart and that victory provides milk and honey. Okay, that, that victory is... 
is a restorative thing. This is the land of milk and honey. And these guys aren't tasting much honey. But Samson just killed something at the, at the doorway of the Philistines. He rips this thing apart. And in time, this is the restoration of honey. And he gives it to him and his family. Okay. In chapter 15, Samson is escorted to the entrance of the Philistine territory. The Philistines roar and they rush at him. Okay, this is, this, this is the language we miss because we're not Hebrews. We don't see it. But this story is paralleled perfectly at the end. This is what's, what's happening here with this lion is what Samson's going to do to the Philistines. All right? That's what the, the author's doing. The Philistines roar and attack him. The spirit rushes upon him in 15. He tears them apart with the jawbone of an ass. And that victory secures peace and prosperity for his people. Okay? The land of milk and honey starts to become the promised land once again because the Philistines have been suppressed. Um, do you see that? If you don't believe me, I'm okay. You can disagree with me, but I don't think Samson's doing anything wrong here. He is, he is enacting in a small way what's about to happen to the Philistines. His father went down, verse 10, to the woman, and Samson prepared a feast there. That's what the young men used to do. As soon as the people saw him, they brought 30 companions and said, well, Samson says to them, oh, let me put a riddle to you. Remember? Who is he? He's, the, he's Samson, the picker of fights, all right? Uh, 13, where's 1325? Are we up to that yet? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, this whole section is the picker of fights guy. Oh, marry that chick. She's, it's going to go horribly wrong, and we're going to have a chance to have some fights. So this is Samson, the picker of fights. He's down there. It's kind of the wedding time, and all these people are guests around, and Samson's like, I've got a riddle for you guys, and I'm going to put the stakes pretty high. 30 tunics are on the line here. If you can figure out my riddle, I owe you 30 tunics. If you don't, if, if you don't get to figure out the riddle, you owe me 30 tunics. And you might think, can't you just go down to like, you know, the old secondhand shop and buy 30 t-shirts or something? <laughs> it's not like that. Like tunic, these are, uh, garments are costly in these days. You didn't have, you didn't have cotton presses and stuff like that that can make things easy. Um, garments are expensive. 30 tunics is like a fortune. All right. So the stakes are high and they foolishly say yes. And he poses a riddle that's like impossible for them to get. They'll never get it. There's no way they'll get it unless they extort it out of the girl. So he says to them, oh, yeah, let me, I'll put a riddle to you, verse 12. If you can tell me what it is within seven days of the feast and find it out, I'll give you 30 tunics. If you can't tell me, then you'll give me 30 tunics. They said, put your riddle to us that we may hear it. He says to them, out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. And in three days, they could not solve the riddle. Okay, they'd entered a foolish bargain. On the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, entice your husband. By the way, it's not her husband at the moment, but the marriage proceedings are underway. Um, the marriage has not been consummated yet. We'll talk about that in a moment. Um, but, but for all intents and, intents and purposes, she is his wife. She's his betrothed. So they say, entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you in your father's house with fire. Have you invited us here to impoverish us? And Samson's wife wept over him and said, you hate me. <laughs> you don't love me. You have put a riddle to my people and have not even told me who it is. Uh, no, not told me the answer. So she's not saying I need to tell them. She's saying, do you love me? Share it with me. You know, she went before him in the seven days that their feast lasted and uh, Samson caved. All right. Uh, he, and he told her because she pressed him hard. He told the riddle. She told the riddle to her people. And the men of the city said to him on the seventh day, just before the sun went down, just before time's up, well, Samson, what's sweeter than honey and what's stronger than a lion? We know the answer to your riddle. He said to them, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. 
All right. So his little games, his little games up, but either way, Samson wins. He's a troublemaker and he's going to use this opportunity. I've got to find 30 tunics. Where am I going to find 30 tunics? The spirit of the Lord rushed upon him and he went down to Ashkelon. It's the, it's the Philistine village down the road and struck down 30 of the men of the town, took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house. He was a bit grumpy that it turned out that way. And Samson's wife was given to his companion who had been his best man. All right. So it's like the whole deal's over. Um, end of the story. Do I want to say anything about this? Um, no, except, except for the fact that Samson's starting to make the headlines. Okay. In the newspapers, it's like, man, these 30 dudes got roughed up down in Ashkelon. Their clothes got stolen and given to the other guys. It's, and it's Samson, he's a bit of a wild man. So he's starting to hit the, he's starting to trend on Twitter, put it that way. That's Samson, the troublemaker. 15, Samson, the avenger. After some days at the time of wheat harvest, so it's harvest time. Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat. He said, I will go into my wife in the chamber. He's going to consummate the marriage, okay? Just just uh, little things about marriage. Marriage is a sexual union within a covenant, a sexual union within a covenant relationship. If you have the sexual union without the covenant, it's not a marriage. If you have the covenant without the sexual union, it's not a marriage either. A, a marriage is a sexual union within a covenant. And the, the betrothal has been made, the promises have been made, but the marriage has not been consummated yet. So it's not... And it's not a marriage yet. He goes down to consummate and take his wife. Um, but her father uh, would not allow him to go in. Verse 2, her father said, I really thought that you utterly hated her, so I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please take her instead. Um, he's probably thinking, this dude can rough 30 guys up. You know, I don't, I, I sort of, <laughs> I don't want to just sort of turn him away. Maybe he can take the younger sister. Samson said to them, this time... I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. First time round, okay, that was all on Samson. He went out, roughed up 30 guys unprovoked. But this time, I'm innocent of what's about to happen. Okay, you have taken my wife away from me, is what he's saying. And I'm, I'm going to, I'm, what's about to happen is justice. You took my wife and the, the fruitfulness that we could have had together I'm going to take from you the fruitfulness that you're about to harvest in your fields. Okay, so it's an eye for eye thing. He's, he is executing justice. He is Samson, the godly avenger at this point. Okay, so Samson said, I'm going to be innocent. So Samson, verse four, went, caught 300 foxes, took torches. He turned them uh, tail to tail, put a torch between each pair of tails. And when he had set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go running into the standing grain of the Philistines and set fire to the stacked grain and the standing grain, as well as the olive orchards. I'll just briefly skip through the rest of the story, okay? Chapter 15, um, chapter 15, Samson, this is Samson the Avenger. Chapter 15, Samson the, the Divine Judge. Oh, by the way, the Avenger continues, because after he messes up their crops, the Philistines say, who did this? They're like, Samson did this. And uh, they go, okay, we'll grab his wife and the father will burn them with fire. Why do you burn someone with fire? That's some kind of ritual offering thing going on there. That's not just, we'll kill them and dispose of them to teach them a lesson. They burn them with fire in some kind of ritual worship thing, perhaps. And Samson avenges that, okay? He, he, um, Samson said to them, if this is what you're going to do, I swear I'll be avenged on you, and after that I will quit. And he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow, and he went down and stayed in the cleft of the rock. Hip and thigh is a sacramental term from the, um, the proceedings that go on in the tabernacle, okay? So 
They did a sacramental offering of the wife and he returns the blow by striking them hip and thigh. And it's an, an illusion that almost Samson's, Samson's activity in smashing these guys is an, is an offering to God. All right. That's kind of the, the way the language is structured. All right. So that's Samson the Avenger. Then Samson the divine judge. The Philistines came up. Um, and the men of Judah said to Samson, this is what happens when you're a stirrer and you're a um, holy troublemaker. Um, people on your own side start to go, hey, man, you're making things tense. The men of Judah said, don't you know that um, the, the, the Philistines are rulers over us? We, we're going to hand you over to them. Um, verse 12 of chapter 15, they said to him, we've come down to bind you that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. Samson said, swear to me that you'll not attack me yourselves. He's not even sure of them. They say, no, we won't attack you. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. That's that roaring. They roared against him. They leapt out on him. The spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. The ropes on his arms became flax. They, they caught fire. They broke. He found a jawbone. He struck a thousand. Then he wrote a song about it. With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps. With the jawbone of a donkey, I've struck down a thousand men. And he said, that is Jawbone Hill. And every kid from then on who walked past the hill was like, what's this hill called, Dad? Jawbone Hill. Why is it called Jawbone Hill? Samson took a jawbone and smashed a thousand Philistines. It's like, um, it's like he's he's just he's Twitter trending hard out. Okay, he's he's famous. He's becoming he's Samson the divine judge. He's doing all sorts of wild stuff, and then his life turns a corner. All right, uh, I want to finish with this. Uh, next, go slide, 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 and there's that. Are you? Am I a holy troublemaker? Now, the question here, I guess, for us is: Am I a holy troublemaker? Am I supposed to be like Samson? Or am I? Um, and um, you, we just need to sit in the story today and realize that God uses holy troublemakers. Okay, sometimes God raises up someone in times of complacency to make it a not a very complacent place. You can't sit on the fence anymore. That's what Samson did, and that's what God does from time to time. Elijah was a holy troublemaker. Ahab's like, is that you, you troubler of Israel? You troublemaker? And Elijah's the only godly person in town, all right? But he is a troublemaker, and he sets up a big fight on the hill with the, with the prophets of Baal. God has a place for the holy troublemaker. So as people who are looking on and we see a holy troublemaker, or we see a troublemaker, we shouldn't go, uh, God's not in that. We should at least ask the question, is God doing something here? Is this person who seems to be in trouble a lot, stirring up strife, drawing hard lines, um, they might be a troublemaker for troublemaker's sake and it's all them, but God does use these sorts of people from time to time. They do pop up. So I want to say, am I one? Probably not, because it's rare. Okay, so assume not. Assume that it's not your job to go out and tie foxes and run them through the paddocks and stuff against the pagan enemies out there. Assume it's not, because it's rare. Okay? Assume not this good. Just because you want to be a troublemaker doesn't mean that God's calling you to be a holy troublemaker. All right? You can be, a ho- you can be holy without being a troublemaker. And you can be a troublemaker without being holy. Okay? You want the two together. And here's some tips on finding out if you are one of those. One, it's rare, so probably not. Two, um, you have to be completely sold out for God. These guys were Nazarites from birth. Samuel was a Nazarite from birth. Um, Samson is a Nazarite from birth. These guys are consecrated. Their lives are wholly given to God, um, completely sold out for God. Is that you? Is that you? You might be a holy troublemaker. Okay. Um, Are you led by the Spirit? Samson up until this point is doing things in the, in the power of the Spirit. The Spirit comes on him and, and strengthens his hands for these crazy tasks. And he is led largely by the Spirit. That turns a corner in chapter 16, as we'll see next week. But are you led by the Spirit? 
Okay, if, if you are holy, you're agitated by things and you think it's time to stir up some trouble out there in the world where uh, the purposes of God are being thwarted, um, is that just your, your internal angst or is the Holy Spirit at work in that? That's a really important question. Um, are you filled with a joy and a sense of humor? Samson could have a laugh. Samson was not a highly strung dude. He got angry from time to time, but he could write a cool little song about knocking some guys over and have a laugh about it and leave a bit of a memorial pile there. That's Jawbone Hill right there, guys. Thousand Philistines, Jawbone of an ass. All right. Do you have joy and a sense of humor? If you're highly strung and you're angry all the time, you're probably not a holy troublemaker. You're probably just highly strung and angry all the time. Um, do you have a long view? Okay. Samson began to deliver Israel. He died not seeing Israel fully rescued. That didn't happen until Samuel, some a few years later. Okay. But but he, he didn't care. Like his purposes was in, in my time, I will do what I can and I'm not going to hang everything on this moment. He had a long view. Do you have a long view? Reformation is a long game. And then uh, are you thick-skinned? Do you fear the Lord and fear no man? You could be a holy troublemaker. If you care a lot about what people think, you are not a holy troublemaker. You, you can talk like it. You can Twitter like it. You can post stuff on Facebook like you're a holy troublemaker. But when the heat actually lands, can you handle the jandal? Are you thick-skinned? Paul says, if I was about pleasing man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Okay? Jesus was thick-skinned. John the Baptist was thick-skinned. Okay? He's out there preaching a message of repentance, and then he turns the corner and says to Herod, you shouldn't have, that. You shouldn't have her as your wife. That's, you're break, that's a sin against God. And everyone's like, ah, oh, John, you got meddling, man. You were preaching so good, and you got to troublemaking. And now you're in jail. Well, Jesus said he was the most godly man alive. Okay, Jesus didn't condemn that. Jesus thought John the Baptist, among women, there's no one holier than that guy. All right? Um, thick skin. You've got to have a thick skin to be a troublemaker. And then lastly, unlike Samson, are you surrounded by godly counselors who are on board with your troublemaking? I would say that's kind of the, that puts some nice boundaries around your troublemaking and you have good people in your ear going, yeah, this troublemaking you want to get into, this stirring up of things, this drawing of hard lines, um, you know, it's, it's, there's more of you in that than God. There's people who can say that to you and you listen to them, then you're probably in good, good ground. So are you a holy troublemaker? Maybe. Let's pray. Can you stand? Father, we thank you for the story of Judges. We thank you, Lord, for, um, for Samson. We thank you, Lord, that his name appears in, the, in Hebrews as a man mighty in faith that we are to emulate. So, Lord, we would pray that the right stuff of Samson would rub on us this morning, rub off on us this morning. There's plenty there's plenty to question. There's plenty to be suspicious of, but but Lord, um, there's there's an aspect of Samson which is is greatly to be praised and greatly to be admired, and we want to have um, a little bit of Samson rub off on us. Lord, make us strong and courageous. Um, make us not fearing of men. Um, make us fearing uh, fearers of you alone, so that we can walk uh, lightly in our days ahead. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.